welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Please remain standing and pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we ask that uh, we would be able to see you clearly this morning. Even as we've listened with our ears to the word of the Lord proclaimed, Lord, would you help us to see and feel and experience your presence this morning? God, in the faces of the saints all around us, Lord, at your table, Lord, in your word, would you help us to see you and to believe again this morning? We ask this by your spirit, who's the only one who can make it happen. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It was about two years ago, uh, around this week, that I preached my first sermon here at Christ Church, uh, right after the presidential election, on another apocalyptic text. So, super cool. Uh, I'm I'm really thankful for that. Uh, We need to lay down our impulse to read life negatively. This is what Father Ben said with his final reflection last Sunday in his excellent sermon. You should listen to it. Now, if you take this quote out of the context of his sermon, then it might sound like a Joel Osteen, stick your head above the clouds Christianity, or else stick your head in the sand avoidance. We need to lay down our impulse to read life negatively. Now, this is not spiritualized avoidance advice, because even the most optimistic people in the room read life negatively. How can we not? Historians recount the past by conflict and wars. Hollywood remakes past wars or dreams up ever more devastating future conflicts. Humanity has a gruesome fascination with conflict. You can scan trending topics on Twitter. Conflict is the most effective clickbait. We are at once attracted and repelled by conflict. Like moths to a flame, we click every warlike link to further feed our fascination. Now, this human fascination with conflict feeds our broken human impulse to read life negatively. And not just on a political level. After our delightful children go to bed, if you were a fly on the wall in our living room, you might hear Jody and I have a conversation recounting either our workday in the office or in the home by a series of uh, negative events that we suffered through and we made it through that day. Even the sharing of prayer requests with one another becomes just another liturgy of negativity. 
We have an apocalyptic fascination with negativity. The events of this world are chaotic. And on top of that, we are inclined to give all our attention to this conflict. And this is why we need a heavenly perspective on our earthly chaos. The question isn't whether you have an apocalyptic worldview. The question is who defines your apocalyptic worldview? We read the headlines, we read our daily lives, we read the Bible negatively. Adam died in a desolate land. Abraham lived in tents chasing food. Moses moved out of Egyptian palaces into a barren wilderness with no roof. Remember, we had modest homes and beds in Egypt. Now all we have is this desert wasteland and a stone to rest our head. We read the story negatively. Our impulse is to read the Bible negatively. An entire generation dies in the wilderness, then faithless judges and a faithless king. And finally, David brought victory to God's people, but... Victorious in war, David still worshipped in a tent, and he died. Now, after all that time, David's son Solomon built the beautiful permanent temple for the Lord, and then Solomon died. And Solomon's sons, along with 12 tribes, immediately fell apart. They rebelled against Solomon's oppressive governance. Forced labor built God's house in Jerusalem, and only one generation after the temple's completion, Yahweh's people built temples and altars to worship pagan gods throughout all Israel. With every succeeding generation, Israel neglected the temple. They rejected the word of the Lord. The temple was destroyed and all Israel was judged by the God of wrath, slaughtered and held captive in the wilderness of Babylon. Decades later, the people returned to the desolate city of Jerusalem. A second temple was constructed, but there was no son of David on the throne. Daniel's prophecy of the abomination of desolation came to pass in 167 BC. Antiochus Epiphanes profaned the altar in the temple. Samaria and Jerusalem still at war. High places, idolatry, and unrest on every side of Yahweh's house. Mark chapter 11. Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He entered into the temple with righteous anger. Jesus cursed the fig tree. Idolatry surrounded the temple. Idolatry within the temple. Day after day, Jesus confronted idolatry in the temple. This negative reading is how many of us read the Bible, and for good reason. This is how we read world events. This is how we read our life. And with that story, how can we not read life negatively? Mark chapter 13. After a long day of teaching, Jesus and his disciples get away. Turning back as they exit the temple, the disciples marvel. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Can you imagine the sight? To look upon Solomon's temple, even to look upon the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem would have been remarkable. 
Even today, after the desolation of the temple in 70 AD, with only one wall remaining, the temple in Jerusalem is awe-inspiring. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And you would think that Jesus, who loved the temple from his youth, might respond to his disciples, finally, Just maybe God's people will honor the Lord in his temple. My disciples might finally honor God's house. They might listen to the voice of the prophets who cried out in the wilderness. But that's not what he said. Jesus responds in Mark 13 to their adulation. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus and his disciples kept walking and they went outside the city. And when they were finally alone, the disciples asked the question, which Jesus answers in Mark chapter 13. When will these things be? What will be the sign of the temple's desolation? Now, If you read technical commentaries on Mark 13, even if you read best-selling fiction, both religious fiction and secular fiction, if you watch television, both apocalyptic religious commentators on Christian networks or apocalyptic religious commentators on secular news networks, if you pay attention to the Bible scholars, news anchors, and your neighbors, everyone wants to answer the question, when will the final judgment happen? Was the abomination of desolation in 167 BC or 67 AD or 68 or 70? Was it World War II or November 8th, 2016 AD? Is the abomination of desolation a still future event after a supposed rapture? When will the temple be destroyed? Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch out, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Alone on the mountain with his disciples, how did Jesus respond to this question? At the center of Jesus' response, our reading from Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 20, describes the devastating effects of a war that would take place in the first century, according to verse 30. Jesus tells his disciples, get out of the city. Without a question in my mind, the Roman siege, conquest, and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 66 through 70 AD fulfills this prophetic warning. By God's mercy, before this abomination of desolation, before the war, the first recipients of Mark's gospel quickly listened and got out of the city at the first sign of conflict. But... Does the desolation of the temple in 70 AD exhaust the meaning of this text? In other words, did I just give you the answer and you don't have to read this anymore? Right? Is Mark chapter 13 a history lesson or is it gospel? Now, here is my one sure conviction as we approach Mark 13. 
we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We can best understand Mark 13 by reading, wait for it, the Gospel of Mark. In other words, you don't have to read Josephus, nor do you have to decode technical commentaries or current events to understand this text. So let's look at the text of Mark 13 together. I have two points, two points for the note takers in this room, like my wife, they love this. Two points. Number one, stop fixating on desolation. Stop fixating on desolation. Verse 21 of Mark 13. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Watch out. I have told you all things beforehand. There is one certainty in Jesus' answer. In every time, with every conflict throughout human history, there will be peddlers of false security during catastrophe. Countless false saviors and countless false prophets competing for your attention. Look here. Look there. The world is going to hell. Follow me. Now, our reading this morning ends with an imperative. Watch out. And it also begins with an imperative. In verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, watch out so that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And so verses 5 through 23 begin and end with the same warning. Watch out. Many will come even in the name of Jesus, and they will entice you to look at them, to follow them. How do false prophets distract us? Now, in every age, false messiahs stoke the flames, they escalate rhetoric, they fixate on calamity, and we hypnotically follow. God help us if you think I'm talking about Donald Trump or Rachel Maddow. There will be many antichrists inside and outside the church, on your television screen and your smartphone, in your enlightened periodical and the intellectual dark web, in your Twitter feed and Instagram stories, there are countless people who make their money by enticing you to fixate on desolation. Look over here. Look over there. Verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, does this sound familiar? (laughs) Do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So just as the warning or Jesus' response begins in verses 5 and 6 and ends with a warning. 
the wars and rumors and wars in verses 7 through 8 parallel the description of the temple conflict from our reading in verses 14 through 20. So in verses 14 through 20, Jesus invites first century Christians in Jerusalem to see, to pay attention to the signs of coming conflict and get out of town. But the language in verses 7 and 8 and 14 through 20 is softer. Jesus begins and ends this discourse with a strong warning, but he follows it with a gentle exhortation in verses 7 and 8. Do not be alarmed. Resist the temptation to fixate on calamity, to follow after people who make their living by stoking the flames of your passions and fears. Loud and theatrical Sean Hannity. Quiet and measured NPR. They all pay the bills with unhealthy fixation on desolation. Jesus invites us to be wise and pay attention to calamitous circumstances, but neither should we be alarmed. Jesus continues in verse 9, Watch out! They will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Watch out. When will these things be? What will be the sign of the temple's desolation? Here at the chiastic center of Jesus's discourse, here is the central idea of Jesus's answer. At the center of the discourse, we were reminded that even if you reject the fervor of false political messiahs, false intellectual messiahs, false theological messiahs, even if you somehow manage to both pay attention and not be alarmed by the apocalyptic conflict all around you, even then principalities and powers will appear to be victorious. Even if by God's grace you manage to escape the slaughter, escape the murderous rage of humanity that is fixated upon desolation, even then you cannot escape suffering. Your biological family will reject you. Your own brother will deliver you over to death. Your child will betray your trust. Your parents will drift away in the stream of Fox News outrage. Your children will drift away in the stream of enlightened orthodoxy, of progressive outrage. Watch out. If you decide to reject the apocalyptic worldview of false messiahs and you embrace the apocalyptic worldview of Jesus, you will be hated. 
you will be sacrificed upon the altar of outrage. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Watch out. The world is full of conflict, and Jesus invites us to stop fixating on desolation. Now, here's the big question. How are we supposed to do that? Is it even possible to lay down our impulse to read life negatively, to stop fixating on desolation? Well, I wouldn't be preaching if I didn't think so. The central point of Mark 13, which I believe is the central point of Mark's gospel, and it's the central point of the whole Bible. It's a positive point. This is important. It's positive. So my second point, turn your eyes upon Jesus. While Mark 13 has several similarities with other apocalyptic literature like Daniel and Revelation, this prophetic discourse is a part of a multi-layered gospel book. Mark 13 is so much more than a highly structured and repeated negative imperative to stop fixating on desolation. This text is positive. It's a positive invitation to fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't just take my word for it. Let me show you. Mark chapter 1 and verse 10. When we came, when he came up out of the water, when Jesus came up out of the water at his baptism, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Heaven has come to earth in Jesus. The Garden of Eden was intended to be the fixed location of Yahweh's heavenly presence on earth. Adam was called to spread the temple garden of Yahweh's presence on earth as it is in heaven. Mount Sinai was the place of Yahweh's presence. The Ark of the Covenant was the place of Yahweh's presence. The tabernacle was the place of Yahweh's presence. The temple was the fixed place of Yahweh's presence. The innermost holy place in the temple where only the high priest could enter, this was the place of the very presence of Yahweh on earth. And the gospel of Mark begins with the heavens being torn open and descending upon Jesus, who is the very presence of Yahweh on earth. Mark chapter 15 And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Just as the clouds were torn open, the temple veil was torn open. From the beginning to the end of Mark's gospel, Jesus is the very presence of Yahweh. He is the Lord Yahweh God come from heaven to earth to reunite what was broken by sin. Jesus is the true temple. The disciples are fixated on the wonderful stones and the wonderful buildings of the temple, even while the very presence of Yahweh walked with them and talked with them. 
Mark chapter 14. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Later in Mark chapter 15. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. How are we supposed to deal with the conflict all around us? International wars, national unrest, broken family, wars in our own homes. In the midst of undeniably negative narratives, what can we do? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus rejected the fervor of false teachers. Jesus paid careful attention to the turmoil of real life, and he was not alarmed. Jesus didn't shy away from chief priests or princes, and principalities fled every time he walked into town. Jesus was delivered over to death by one of his closest disciples, his family. His trust betrayed, Jesus was sacrificed upon the altar of outrage. The temple of Yahweh was crucified on a tree. The abomination of desolation, the desecration of the holiest place in heaven and earth, mocked by the religious, abandoned by his closest friends. The apparent victory of demonic powers and wicked men will not last. The sufferings will be mercifully cut short. Two dark nights and then resurrection. The cross of Christ exposes the superficial victory of outrage. The deception of the snake is crushed by Yahweh himself. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. At first glance, the sin-soaked story of the Old Testament is a negative story. But read through the lens of Christ and the Old Testament comes alive as the story of God's patience and mercy fulfilled in Christ. Don't just take my word for it. Read the story for yourself. You have to be able to watch out yourself for false teachers. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the true temple of his body. He is the wonderful cornerstone of our salvation. Fix your eyes upon Jesus and all the desolations of this life will be counted joy. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.